So today we're finishing the third of five teaching sections in the Gospel of Matthew. We've been in here for a while, and today we finish up another teaching section. Remember, Matthew is divided up between the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. Next week we'll be back in a section dealing with the works of Jesus. Today we're finishing up the words of Jesus in Matthew 13. We call Matthew 13 the kingdom parables. Now there'll be more parables in the book of Matthew, but this is a special grouping of parables. All of the parables in Matthew 13 are dealing with kingdom comparisons, what the kingdom of God is like. And you see that phrase as you go through each of these parables, and we've been in some beautiful parables and teaching the last several weeks, and I'm uh, blessed to come and share this uh, final teaching of this particular section on the parable of the net, okay? So we're going to just jump right into it and see what it has to say to us today. Verse 47, follow along as I read. Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was let down into the lake and caught all kinds of fish. When it was full, the fishermen pulled it up on the shore. Then they sat down and collected the good fish in baskets, but threw the bad away. This is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood these things, Jesus asked? Yes, they replied. He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house who brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. All right, we'll stop right there. Uh, These are amazing parables, and this one is an amazing parable. As you can see right off the bat, this parable is about judgment, In fact, if we want to get real detail, it's about death, it's about hell. (laughs) How you doing out there? Okay, so, I mean, when was the last time you heard those three words in a sermon? In church, I think it's a little embarrassing, actually, because if you go back to the the great enlightenment or, or some of the seasons in church history where the church flourished or there was great revival, those three words were probably the most prevalent words in the church, judgment, death, and hell. Well, we're going to hold on to those words today as we go through this text and see what it has to say to us. And uh, the first, I'm going to frame this in four simple things that you'll see there on your outline. I see a big picture, a big net, a big uh, idea, uh, a big day and a big idea. Those four things are going to frame where we're going today in the message. Let's talk about this big picture. First of all, verse 47a, the first few words of this verse, look at it again with me. Once again, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like. Now remember we said that parables were stories that Jesus told, but they were told specifically to illustrate a point, a primary point. And parables were sort of code language that Jesus used, you remember, to hide truth from people who didn't want to hear it and to reveal truth to people who did. It's a good place to ask yourself the question, which one of those people am I? Am I a person that leans in to listen, to want to know more? Am I interested in the things of the kingdom? Am I interested in the things of God? If so, then parables really unlock some beautiful truth. But if you're folding your arms, pushing away from the table, not really interested in what 
what uh, God's kingdom is about or what his rule and reign in our lives are about, then it's likely that the central meaning of these parables are going to sort of skate over. You're not going to see exactly what's going on there. Jesus used parables as code for truth seekers uh, to be revealed the truth and to conceal those who were uh, against the truth. Okay, so, so what is the big picture of this parable? Uh, and, and in fact, the, the setting of this where Jesus says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like. What I see here is that the big picture is the mysterious nature of the kingdom. The mysterious nature of the kingdom. Remember we said when we started the parables that the Jewish people of Jesus' day were awaiting the kingdom. And when the king finally shows up and Jesus proclaims himself to be Messiah, he's the Christ, everybody's waiting for this new kingdom to sort of explode. And when we talk about kingdom, here's what they were thinking. They were thinking geographical territory. They were thinking a palace or a a headquarters. They were thinking a throne. They were thinking a literal king. Uh, sitting on that throne, and everyone in the world sort of bowing to that throne. This is what the Jewish people believed. And in fact, that's what all of us believe about the kingdom of heaven. When will it be that God rules and reigns and the whole earth recognizes his rule and reign? But the mystery of the kingdom parables show us that between the time of Jesus' first coming and his second coming, there's going to be a suspended period of time where the kingdom's not going to look the way we think it looks. Or should look. And let's just take our Bibles. Let's go back to the beginning of this whole discussion in chapter 13. And let's just walk through the parables where we've been. This will be a little bit of review for those who are just catching us today or recently uh, on terms, in terms of the kingdom parables of Matthew 13. Uh, there are seven of them here. And the one we're looking at today is the seventh. And, uh, but let, let's just walk back through it. What does the kingdom of God look like? Well, first it looks like, uh, it looks like this, Jesus says. There's a lot of response And it's a varied response to the kingdom message. And he told the parable of the soils. Remember, it was not the parable of the seeds, it was, or even the sower, it was the parable of the soils. What kind of soil are we? What kind of hearts do we have? And with all the responses that people have, all the way from total surrender to absolute rejection of the kingdom and everything in between. I mean, people that look like they're accepting the kingdom that really aren't. The thorny ground, the rocky soil, no substance, no base in those people's hearts. And Jesus said, with all the variance, this is the way the kingdom looks. There are people that really believe, people that have rejected what I have to say, and then there are people that sort of jump at it, but really they're not really in. And that's true of the kingdom in this age. There's all kinds of response to the message of Jesus. Then Jesus proceeded to tell a parable about the tares, the weeds in the, in the garden, remember? And the weeds, the tares are a reminder to us, this is the central meaning of the parable, that the strange is enough, even under God's kingdom reign, God's going to allow goodness, righteousness, watch this, and evil to track along, right alongside of each other. And that feels weird to us because we feel like if God is really reigning, wouldn't he be dispensing of all the evil of the world and just building the good things that he wants to do in the world? But no, during this season of the kingdom, righteousness and wickedness actually go side by side all the way to the end. And that means that even in a crowd this size, uh, we would expect and hope and pray that everyone here has a personal, living, dynamic relationship with the living God. But there are some of us who are terrors. And in fact, we've all been tares until God converts our lives and makes us into the wheat of his barn. But the reality is, in a room this size, there are wheat and there are tares. And 
physically, we really can't tell the difference. We might sing the same way. We might have the same expressions, the, the same motions in our lives. We might talk a language that sounds very similar, but God sees the heart. And at the end, there's going to be a separation. That's a crazy idea. And that was new, foreign to the Jews that were listening to the kingdom, what it was about. Then he goes on to describe the parable of the mustard seed and the yeast. The kingdom's so small, so insignificant. doesn't seem like it has much traction or much power in this day and age, Jesus said. But in fact, it's going to grow into the greatest of all. And that which starts as just little yeast is going to permeate every part of the dough. There's going to be an incessant, deliberate permeation of the kingdom of God and his work as it grows, as God's kingdom grows until the day that Jesus Christ actually takes his throne. And even though the signs of the world would tell us otherwise, we know that the kingdom of God is actually growing in that way. And then he describes the kingdom of God as uh, the hidden treasure and the, peril, uh, and the pearl. And how it has, the kingdom has inestimable value. The kind of value that not only do you recognize its value, but that you would not just recognize it, but that you would sell all that you had. You would pursue it with everything you had, knowing its inestimable worth in your life. And how beautifully Pastor Danny brought this out last week that is one thing to see the treasure of the kingdom and another thing to give your life to the treasure of the kingdom. And that's the mystery of the kingdom. There are people that see its value, but don't, don't, go all out. They're not all in. And Jesus said, really, the kingdom of heaven really is like the person who sees the value of the kingdom and actually pursues the kingdom. And then we come now to this final parable of the net. And what does the net talk about? Well, let's, let's, uh, what the net is really describing to us, if you just don't want the bottom line here, that what this parable is going to show us is that judgment is coming. That's really what this parable is about. It's a reminder to us that there's judgment that's coming. That's, that's the, what's going on with this big, big picture. Now, so let's talk about the big net now. This transitions now. We come to this big net. So Jesus used idioms and illustrations that would keep his listeners uh, understanding what he was saying, the people that were leaning into the truth. And of course, Jesus in this day and age, a lot of people were fishermen. A lot of his disciples were fishermen. So this was a story about fishing and, and his disciples knew it. How did you fish? Well, we fished then the same way we fish today. You can fish with a line and a hook like some people did. Some fish are caught that way. And by the way, let's just stop right here. How many people like to fish? Anybody? Okay. Yeah. I love to fish. I really do. And I've got lots of fishing stories. So whenever I read stuff like this, and by the way, this is not a parable about fishing, okay? But it's important to understand it if we're going to understand the meaning of the parable. So you can fish with hook and line, that's fine. But you can also fish with nets. And the way that fishermen in Jesus' day fished, they fished with two basic kinds of nets. Okay, I'll be real basic here. One was a kind of net that would, you would sling over your shoulder. It was small, it was portable. And you would go out into the shores, the shallow area of a, of a lake or ocean if you wanted to. And you would take that that net, and you would swing it like a lasso. You'd kind of be like a cowboy or a cowgirl for a second, and you would let that thing fly, and as it flew, it would rotate, spread out, hit the water, and then the weights, the smaller weights that were around the rim of this net would sink, and as it sank, it would get closer and closer. And what basically that kind of net would do, it would catch a school of fish, or the idea was that if there was a school of fish coming by, it would, it would gather a big catch with that kind of net. 
And a lot of fishermen use that kind of net. In fact, we see that net used in John 21. You remember when the disciples were after the resurrection and they were all discouraged? They hadn't seen Jesus and they, were, they decided to go back fishing. Let's go back to our, own, our old occupation. So they're out fishing one day and Jesus shows up on the shore. You remember this? John 21. And Jesus says, have you caught any fish? Now, by the way, if, you're, if you love fishing and you haven't caught anything, you hate that question. You know, I people walk up, hey, have you caught anything? And no, and you just say, well, you know, I've had a few strikes, a couple of nibbles. You know, you, you can't just say, no, nothing, it's been terrible. You know, you just, you always want to have a little hope. Anyway, so these guys are in the boat, and Jesus says, do you remember what he says? Verse 6 of John 21, he says, why don't you cast your nets on the other side of the boat? Now, you remember, they probably were thinking, what? Come on. We've been fishing all night, nothing happening. Jesus wants us to throw on the other side. Listen, if Jesus tells you to fish on the other side of the boat, fish on the other side of the boat. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you love to have Jesus on any fishing trip you were a part of? I would. I would anyway. So Jesus tells them, and they do, and they catch this giant group of fish. Well, and there's a lot in that story. We're, this is not John 21 this morning, but it's a beautiful story about that kind of net, the, the small lasso net. Okay, but then there's this other net, and this is the net that Jesus actually uses right here. It's only used right here in this, in this text that we're looking at. Uh, my Bible doesn't have it. The NIV doesn't have it. I think the any. Uh, I think the NASB might, the King James might have it, but it's actually literally translated the dragnet. Okay, now that's not to be confused with the 1960s television show <laughs> dragnet, although the similar idea, the idea of closing in on sort of the, uh, the people that you're going after, well, this is what the dragnet was about. The dragnet was big, and it was usually used where you would uh, go out with two boats and you would suspend the net between the two boats. One boat would stay stationary and the other boat would slowly move around and it would drag sort of the, sur- the bottom of the, the lake with a, with a net that kind of went the, around as the boat went around, the circumference of the circle, the distance between one line and the other, and it would go all the way around. At the end, it would gather up whatever has been its path. More likely, you would attach one side of it to the shoreline where there would be a good exit area at the distance of the net, and you would start on the shore and you would begin to go out with your boat and you would just work your way around. The principle of this drag net that Jesus is talking about is the slow process that moved along gathering unsuspecting victims and limiting their escape, watch this, because of its narrowing space and time elapsed. So here's the deal with the dragnet. The dragnet is a slow, deliberate process where its victims don't realize what's happening. They bump into the net, and they think, oh, what's this? This is a foreign object. I'll move away. I've got lots of freedom this way. So they move away. They don't realize that the freedom that they think they have is actually getting smaller. And it gets more small, more small, more small, until finally they come to the end where there's no longer any escape route. The net has finally closed in. So if we're talking about the big net, here's the principle if you want to write this down. The big net is the slow and eventual gathering of all humanity to the shores of eternity. Now, no pun intended here, but let that sink in just for a minute. You know, there's amazing, it's amazing how In all of our lives, there is this slow but eventual gathering to the shores of eternity. And here's where we're talking about death. I did a little study on this, and I was amazed to see how many people die every day in our world. 
Do you know that every day in our world, 150,000 people die? Uh, that means every, every, uh, every second, 100 people step off this planet in death. In the time it took me to tell you that, which it took me longer than I should have taken, 1,000 people have perished. That's crazy when I think about it. Now, a lot of people have been born, too, during that time. But think about every second, 100 people, boom, boom, 100 people, 100 people, 100 people. Hospitals, accidents, heart attacks, disease, slow, it's, it's happening. Um, and, you know, I don't mean to be light of this. In fact, I want to be very uh, sensitive. I, in a crowd this size, some of us have lost loved ones in recent days. And this right now is a really hard moment. I want you to know, I've, I may not know your name, but I've prayed for you all week long. I've said, Lord, we're talking about death. We're talking about judgment. This parable is a very straight on, in your face kind of reminder of something that all of us push away in our lives. And I've prayed for people that have gone through death in recent days with loved ones that this would not be a crushing blow, but actually something very life-giving, something hopeful in the midst of it. But what we can't get away from in this parable is that death is eventual. It, it, I think of the Pollyanna movie, you know, where Carl Malden is preaching that fiery sermon at the beginning where he says and screams out, death comes unexpectedly, you know. Have you seen that movie? I guess I'm alone. Anyway, I, just, we saw that movie as my kids watch it forever. It's a classic in terms of this death coming unexpectedly. You know, a more startling statistic is the fact that one out of every one person dies. Think about that for a minute. But here's, here's the problem. The problem is, is A, we don't live like we're going to die. We think we're never going to die. Our society pushes it out. We're, we're, we're so sterile. In fact, in our culture, you know, in some cultures, when someone dies, they're brought into the house, they're laid on a table or a bed, and for a week, Family comes, distance, and they mourn the, the loss of this loved one. In our culture, someone has died, they're whisked away, they're immediately at a funeral home or very quickly thereafter, they might be cremated. It's like in our culture, all we want to do is, is dispose, get done with, get terribly uh, that terrible part in the season, and I get it, I know, that's why we do it, but in some ways, our culture robs us from the nuances of the reality of death. In fact, many of you have never even seen a dead body. And, I, and I, I'm not trying to get morbid here or anything, but, but there's a lot of cultures in the world where that's a very normal part of living, is being around uh, and recognizing the, the extreme grief and the emotion that follows death. The point I'm trying to make here is that we, we push death out as far as we can. Uh, let's look at what Scripture has to say about this as a reminder to us. Hebrews 9.27. Let's read this out loud. Ready? Here we go. Man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. Now, that's what the Bible says. So right away, we know reincarnation, eh, not true. We don't come back. We don't cycle back into this life. The Bible teaches that we go through life, we die, and there's a judgment that we face. Um, in fact, thinking about this, I'm thinking of of uh, Psalms uh, 89, 48. What man can live and not see death or save himself from the power of the grave? Great question. The answer, nobody. Uh, Ecclesiastes 8, 8 says, no one has power over the day of his death. Um, 
You know, you've heard the statement, live as each, each day was your last, you know? And I saw someone say recently, they said, yeah, you know, if you live that way every day, one of these days you're going to get it right. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> the point is, death does come. Every time we drive by a funeral home, every time we see the obituary page in the local newspaper, every time we hear of someone who was killed in an accident or died of natural causes or a victim of terrorist attacks or whatever, it should remind us that the net is being drawn. Do you think about that? Ecclesiastes 7.2 says, It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for there is the end of every person, and the living take it to heart. It's kind of like the one place where we imagine the reality of our death. Uh, and then we walk out within an hour of that time, and we do everything we can to undo every experience, every emotion, every thought that we had. We put it away. We compartmentalize. We say it's not going to happen to us. But it, it is going to happen to us. And that's what the parable is about. The parable is reminding us that death is going to come. And, and this is a really important theme in the gospel because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Not just physical death, but spiritual death, separation from God. And the beautiful mystery and glory of the gospel is that God steps into our death experience and he offers us, watch this, not a better life. The gospel is not about a better life. The gospel is about life. It's moving from death to life. And from Scripture's standpoint, you either are a death existence or a life existence. You're either in one or the other. You are either dead walking or you have life. And there's no in-between of that. This, this is the starkness of the parable. And so Jesus is getting us the attention. The parable is telling us the net is moving. The net is moving. He's drawing the net. And one day we'll be at the shores of eternity. Listen, when you stop your life in this life, when you stop living in this life, your life isn't over. It actually, the biggest part of your life is about to begin. You'll live, if you have strength, 70 to 80 years, the psalmist tells us. Some of us know people have gotten to the 90s, even to 100. Wow, that's great. How does that compare to eternity? It's a drop in the bucket. And this is what God wants us to think about, our eternity. Okay, which brings us to the next segue here, which is we've talked about uh, the big picture, uh, a big net. Let's talk about the big day, all right, big day. Are you guys okay out there? Are you okay? Okay. <laughs> Some people are going, gee, is the service over yet? I'm looking to... Okay. Okay. 48b. Look at verse 48b. Right halfway through this, Jesus says, Then they sat down and collect... This is the fishermen. They sat down, collected the good fish in baskets, and threw the bad ones away. Every fisherman knows about that. Ah, some fish are keepers, some fish are not. And this is how it will be at the end of the age. Okay, so now we're going from story to something really, really important. Jesus says, the angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that, that just, that sounds terrible, doesn't it? It really does. But we, are, we have so whitewashed this whole thing. It's crazy. Hey, here's, here's what the big day, if you're taking, taking notes, the big day is when those who have rejected Christ are separated from the righteous and taken into judgment, taken into fiery judgment. Now the emphasis on the parable of the weeds previously in this chapter is about uh, how all of this goes together, the long coexistence between righteousness and evil before judgment. Here the emphasis is all on the separation it's all about what happens. It's about that moment where God says, you know, to those on his right, enter in, to those on his left, you know, depart from me. 
And by the way, in this particular section of Scripture where many of us look, uh, this is not so much giving us the sequence of end-time events. It's, it's, remember, parables are big picture. The big picture, judgment's coming. And in that judgment, there's going to be a separation, the righteous from the unrighteous. And remember, the righteous are not the people that did good and the unrighteous didn't do good. The righteous are people that God has made righteous by His grace through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And the unrighteous are people who tried to live maybe a good life, but they tried it on their own and they did their whole thing thinking that they were good enough. They rejected and spurned God's gracious, loving, merciful invitation. And so at the end of their lives, they stand before God in that judgment and they will be separated out. This is a heavy, heavy message. Now, by the way, some of us listen to this and we get to that point. And in a crowd this size, some people are going, yes, you know, finally the the wicked will get their just due. And, you know, if you you feel that way, if that's kind of the first little point in your heart, uh, can I just say, you know, you're a few clicks away from what really is the heart of God. Because God's heart is not like, you're going to get yours someday. That's not what God's heart is. In fact, let me give you a few scriptures that I think are really, really important to this. Uh, Ezekiel 18.23. Ezekiel 18.23. Do I take any pleasure, God says, in the death of the wicked, declares the sovereign Lord? Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? Isn't that beautiful? It goes on later in Ezekiel 33.11. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways. You just hear God crying out to the people of Israel, the Old Testament, but he's still crying out today. I think he's crying out right here, not just to those here today. If you happen to be sitting here and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, hear the Spirit of God say, why won't you turn? I will not take pleasure in your death. I will not take pleasure in you going through this life and rejecting me wholeheartedly and standing before me someday and having me have to say to you, depart from me for I never knew you. This, this is a, a, a terrible reality that many of us are, are just not a very uh, competent to, to think about, much less share with anybody about. But we need to be. This is, this is an important message of the gospel um, and we, so think, of how do we get this message out? I mean, we could, you know, you, you could build a sandwich board and you could put on the, you know, repent, turn from your ways, you know, judgment's coming. You could wear that. You could go down to a public area. You could stand there in a public area. And, and I've seen, have you seen people do that? I've seen people do that. And, you know, God may use that to some degree. Or you could, you could write it on a car. You know, you could put it in big, bold letters. You know, judgment's coming. Or you could... Or you can just run around finding people that you think are not walking with God and start yelling at them to repent, you know. But, you know, those, those ways are probably not going to gain a lot of traction with people that, that really need to hear. I, I, here's, here's what I think. This is the hard point of this message. Where in our lives are we getting the kind of relational trust with people that don't know Christ where we can have these kinds of conversations with them about their eternal destiny without having them feel like we're just sort of like crying out, you know, hellfire brimstone over them. And, and think about this. Jesus, when he was talking about the net in this parable, that's exactly what he was doing. Uh, this last week I was, um, I do uh, a fire service. I, I, I work in the fire department as a chaplain. And it's a beautiful outreach. It's a beautiful way to 
connect with people out in our community. I, I serve the Alameda County Fire Department. I'm one of the chaplains as a volunteer, and I also serve uh, the citizens of Alameda County when there's a death or something like that, uh, grief support. So for, for continuing education, I went up to a seminar uh, in Sacramento the last couple of days, Thursday and Friday I was up there for a crisis response team, and, and uh, it was an amazing opportunity. Uh, and the, the theme of the seminar I attended uh, for two full days, it was 14 hours of instruction, was called Grief Following Trauma, okay? And so it was all about the grief moments in our lives, and believe me, it was emotionally taxing, hearing stories. There were first responders, chaplains, pastors, uh, some people that were saved, some people not saved just by hearing discussion and stuff, but it, this was really cool. K-Love, the radio station, actually sponsors this whole crisis response thing. It's amazing. Praise God for ministries like K-Love. And... Uh, and a little commercial there because I really value what they do. But here's the deal. Here's the deal. So I'm in it. No, no, just just little tuck it away. Okay, all right. 87.5 on the FM dial. Anyway, no. <laughs> um, I don't know, whatever it is. 88.5 something. But here's the deal. Um, this one half of one day was devoted, are you ready for this? Devoted to training us to do death notifications. Now, I've done death notifications, and they're terrible to do. I mean, th this is the kind of thing you do knowing that you are going to ruin a person's life with the knowledge of what you're about to impart to them. Their loved one has died. And for four hours, we talked about how you do this. Now, I've had some training in it already, so I've done it. But even having had the training, reminders, but here's this one thing that they stress over and over in a death notification you don't mince words. You don't vaguely say that a person has, you know, gone on to a better place or they didn't survive the accident or, you know, um, you know, you can use all kinds of little metaphors to say what you're saying. But in a death notification, no, you say your loved one, you look them in the eye after you've told them you're there because on behalf of their loved one and I'm here to tell you that your loved one was in an accident or something happened. 10 seconds, and they died. You tell them just that matter-of-factly. You don't skirt it. And we saw illustrations of doctors and nurses and people trying to make it soft for people. And, and as soon as you're in a traumatic experience like that, your frontal lobe shuts off and the, the inner part of your brain, which does the fight or flight thing, kind of takes over. And you don't hear rational things. That's why you've got to be brutally, your loved one has died. Your loved one died. Otherwise, they just won't even get it. And even then, they sometimes don't get it. But here's, here's I'm telling you the story because as I reflected over this passage, this is what God is doing for us. He's giving us a death notification. And the death notification is about our impending death. And we have to see it as real. You know, I worked uh, with this program called Every 15 Minutes for several years, local high schools that go through this mock scenario of kids that die in car accidents due to alcohol. And, and so what my role was in that little mock scenario was that I go to parents whose child has volunteered to be one of the living dead on their campus. They walk around all day with a sheet white makeup 
and they're looked upon as being dead to their, it's, it's an amazing program. It's knocked down the whole drinking and driving thing considerably in the state of California. But my role was to go to parents, watch this, who, who know I'm coming. They gave permission because it's a mock thing. You wouldn't want to spring that on anybody and say, just kidding. You go to your parents. You go to these parents that have said, yes, I will do that. I go into their workplace. I go to their home. I sit down with them, and I do it with a police officer. I do it just like I would do in a death notification. And even though it's fake, there's not one parent that doesn't burst into tears or hold, begin to hold each other as they hear this amazing news, news that they expected, news that they knew was going to be there for me, and news that they knew, praise God, it wasn't true, still and powerfully impacts their lives. I have a feeling that this is what Jesus wants us to experience when we read a parable like this. Like we say, wow, my death is coming. Wow, I think I've got freedom, but it's actually getting smaller and smaller, and one day I'm gonna step off this planet and I'm gonna be in eternity on the shores of eternity. Oh my goodness, am I prepared? Because that day hasn't happened right now. Thank you, Jesus. And I take great, courage, great encouragement from that. If you've lost a loved one recently, um, it's probably the impetus in your life. You're probably thinking already, was this person saved? Did this person have a relationship with God? Maybe I should be a little more intentional in conversations with people that I love, people in my family, about whether or not they know Jesus Christ, sharing the gospel, flicking out the beautiful truth of the gospel and letting it fall where it falls. And like the seed of the, like the parable of the sower, it's going to land in some places where it's not going to bring a harvest, but it is going to land in some places where, praise God, the harvest is going to come. And this is what we're called to do. But hell in our culture is, is sort of done away with. This, this big net where, where God is warning us and telling us. You know, I, 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 see, I hear people all the time use the word hell, but they're not using it in a biblical way. It's, it's used with inflammatory language. It's used if something's really bad, it's something having to do with hell. If it's really good, it's something to do with hell. You know, and kids these days, young people, just listen, go out, walk, sit somewhere at a bus stop and listen to kids come out of high school. You'll hear the word hell. They'll add an A to the end of it, hella. They'll be used it all through the conversation. And sometimes I want to think, you know, what you're just talking about there, do you know that that's called, that's, that's a place of eternal punishment, a, a place apart from your creator that created you to have a relationship with you, and you're treating it like it's, you know, it's just common vernacular. If you've got the relational credibility with somebody that uses the word a lot, why don't you just stop and ask them if they know about the place they talk about so much? And just, again, if you've got the relational credibility, if you don't know the person, uh, you know, first of all, you might have explained the question what it meant, and then secondly, you might be like rubbing a sore eye after you're done or something. <laughs> so have relational credibility. Uh, you know, Satan is really good at keeping the picture of judgment, hell, and death just under the radar. And we live in a culture that just has just exploded with everything but those three themes. And in fact, here's, here's a startling fact, studying for this message. You know, if you ask people today in our culture, if you had the choice, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? If you had the choice. Now, you would think slam dunk. Everyone would say, i go to heaven. But you know what? In our culture, in this day and age, there are more and more people, I don't think it's a majority, but there are more and more people that are quickly opting to, I'd rather go to hell. Why? Here's what they say. Because all my friends are going to be there. <laughs> and it's, I'd rather just party with my friends than go to a place like 
be around you Christians, you know. I mean, is that a, an amazing uh, bait and switch that the enemy has done? Give people the impression that the afterlife is just a party with the kind of people that you like to be around, whether it's in hell or heaven. What a lie that is of the enemy. It's not going to be a party in hell. It's going to be a party in heaven. It's going to be a great party. It's going to be an amazing party. And we don't, eye has not seen nor ear has heard nor the, the mind has conceived the great things that God has in store for those who love him, the scriptures tell us. But it's interesting, you can do the research. A lot of people choose hell over heaven because they believe the lie of the enemy that A, it's probably not a real place. If it is, it's just where my friends are. Okay, what's, what's the big idea to this whole thing? Um, this is actually kind of comical. We've got to wrap this up. But verse 51, now remember, all seven parables, all kingdom parables, all kingdom comparisons, Jesus asked his disciples, have you understood all these things? Look at their response. Yes. <laughs> now, I, I laugh at that because I know the gospel of Matthew. Maybe you do too. Go to chapter 15, verse 16. Peter says in another parable, explain the parable to us. And Jesus says, are you still so dull? Why would, why would the disciples so quickly say yes? Well, let's take it plain sense meaning. I think maybe the, the idioms and the metaphors were clearly enough understood. They, they were a country mile from really integrating all of what that meant, but they were just like, yes, we get it. Okay, so what did Jesus say? He said to them, therefore, every teacher of the law who has been instructed about the kingdom of heaven is like the owner of a house that brings out of his storeroom new treasures as well as old. You know, if you read, uh, if you exegete this, read commentary after commentary, you'll find a big variance about what Jesus is talking about. And frankly, a lot of them just come to the end and say, we don't know what he really meant by this. It's kind of confusing. Here's, I think, what's going on. He's saying, look, you know, now the disciples were not teachers of the law, but the teachers of the law that heard the teaching of Christ and the gospel message and all of the kingdom parables, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying when the light finally turns on, you got the foundation of all the stuff that you believed in, but the foundation doesn't take you all the way to the end. Jesus is saying, I'm going to take you to the end. I'm going to give you the pass. I'm going to give you the entrance to the kingdom of heaven. But if you have been rooted and grounded in the, the main points and principles of your faith, Jesus speaking to the Jewish leaders here, He's saying the greatest thing about your new experience in me is you're going to be able to pull out both what is old and what is new to explain this beautiful reality of the kingdom of God. And what, what I would bottom line that with, if you're taking notes, the big idea is that understanding all of this should promote effectiveness in our lives as Christians. And if you want to bottom line that a little bit more, I would say this. God wants to use everything in your life to leverage his gospel message. He wants to use the terrible stuff that's happened in your life. He wants to use the great foundational stuff that happened in your life. He wants to use it all. He's not going to miss any part of it. And you, as a follower of Jesus, pull out of that storehouse treasures both new and old. I don't know. That's my shot at that. But I think that that's a beautiful way to look at this whole beautiful teaching on the kingdom of heaven. Now, the only thing that remains here today is for anybody who is unsure as to where they stand with God. And if you come in here today because you've 
you know, uh, this is a social place or you like the message or you, whatever brings you here today. You like the music, you like the coffee, you like, I don't know why you're here. But if you're here and you're unsure as to where your standing state is with the living God, may I encourage you right now, right here, if you sense the nudging of God's Spirit in your heart to open your life and to receive the gift of life, 